Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. I will warn you ahead of time. I was, I had preached a series out of Revelation chapter 2 through 4 on the letters to the seven churches some years ago. And I, for whatever reason, decided to skip the church, the letter to the church in Ephesus, which is in chapter 2, and, and deal with some of the other letters first. And then I was going to get back to that. And oddly enough, I didn't get back to it. I never preached a message on, on Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, uh, the church in Ephesus, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And so um, um, I've been meaning to get to it, but, you know, I have a full sermon schedule. I just haven't quite gotten to it. And Chris asked me in front of everybody in the first service, when did you preach that series? And I said, 2012. So um, I'm just now getting to it, but this will complete my series. I began in 2012, Revelation chapter two, verse one. Wow, what a letter too, uh, by the way. Some good and some not so good. And we'll look at that in just a minute, but would you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are the words of Christ, by the way. He authored these letters. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Pray with me. Father, as we look at this passage and this letter, I pray that you would examine or help us examine our own hearts, as you already have examined our hearts, to see how alike or different we are from the church in Ephesus. May our act of worship today be the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <laughs> this morning's message is entitled, Bad Moon Rising, Bad Moon Rising. I've probably mentioned that song to you before. It's an old favorite. I probably shouldn't say that as a pastor, I don't know. In 1969, John Fogarty wrote a song about the apocalypse. So anytime I'm in Revelation, I'll, I like to think about this song. Listen to the lyrics of his song about the apocalypse. He says this, and I know my kids won't know this song. I'm just sad for them, but I'm introducing it to them today. I see a bad moon arising. I see troubles on the way. I see earthquakes and lightning. I see bad times today. It's not a very happy-go-lucky song. Don't go around tonight. Well, it's bound to take your life. There's a bad moon on the rise. I hear hurricanes a-blowing. I know the end is coming soon. I fear rivers overflowing. I hear the voice of rage and ruin. Don't go around tonight. Well, it's bound to take your life. There's a bad moon on the rise. Well, there was a bad moon on the rise in Revelation. <laughs> The, the moon that God created, and it was quite literal. And then we see a bad moon on the rise in Ephesus. We haven't gotten to that part, but I'm guessing that the church in Ephesus had no idea 
of the judgment coming upon them if they didn't change their ways immediately. With a few exceptions, Christ's letters to the churches in Revelation chapter 4 were a good news, bad news sort of thing. One of the churches, it was just bad news, and other churches too, was only good news, but most of them, you would tell them the good news and then the bad news, and that's where we are in the church of Ephesus. He begins with the good news that I just read to you. That was the good part, the happy part, if he stopped right there. And I'm sure at this point in the passage, the, the members of the church of Ephesus were high-fiving each other. <laughs> Woo! Well, then there's the next verse. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But they were doing some things right. And no, because we're human, no church is absolutely perfect. There are some things that we do better than other things here at First Baptist Church. But in a moment of sobriety, as we read these seven letters, and in this case, the letter to Ephesus, we have to think about, are, are we similar to that church in any way? And again, it's not all bad. They were doing some good things. First, they were working hard. He mentions that immediately in verse two. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work. Now it's interesting. <clears throat> Jesus says this in all of his letters. He begins by saying these words, this phrase, I know your deeds. In other words, I know what you've been doing. You see, we can pretend to one another and we can pretend to ourselves, but we can't pretend to Jesus. Jesus knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you did last night. He knows what, what you've been doing this morning. He knows where your heart is. He knows your deeds. He knows if you are the most valuable member of this church or you've never done a thing. He knows it all. And this is his admonition, his, his announcement to the churches, to the church in Ephesus and the church of First Baptist Church. I know your deeds, he says. And immediately says this, I know your deeds, your hard work. Immediately, Jesus talks about their hard work. And again, I know they're wooing at Ephesus. All right. I want you to know this morning, even if nobody else notices your hard work here at First Baptist Church, Jesus is watching. He knows your deeds. Maybe everybody knows. Maybe you have a very public job that's in front of everybody and everybody knows what you do and they see the, uh, the, the results of your hard work in the church and you get lots of kudos and congratulations and a lot of thank yous from people all the time. Or maybe you're one of those members that works behind the scenes and frankly, nobody knows. You walk around outside sometimes when nobody's around and you pick up trash and not a soul in the church knows, not the pastor or anybody else, but Jesus knows. I want you to know, he knows your deeds. Every good thing you do here is for Jesus Christ. And he knows. Not a thing goes on here that he does not know. And that's what he says to them. I know your deeds, your hard work. And they were hard workers. There's an interesting passage about Ephesus in a different place, not Ephesians, but another place in the New Testament where Paul is writing a young pastor that he sent to Ephesus to be a pastor, and his name was Timothy. It's an interesting passage because it directly correlates to this passage. I don't know if you know that, but look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Timothy 1, 3, this is, 3. This is Paul speaking to young Timothy. 
As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Now notice what he says. He says, I want you to stay there, Timothy, because there are some heresies going through the church. There are certain men there that are teaching false doctrines. Paul is very concerned about all the churches, but in this case, the church in Ephesus, that these false doctrines might take hold and they follow after the wrong teachings. And the result is that it would promote controversies. And look at the last part. I put false doctrines. I, by the way, I highlighted this. It's, this is not out of the Greek like that. <laughs> I put false doctrines, controversies, and God's work he says, they, these promote controversies rather than God's work. And he's talking about church in Ephesus. He says, I'm concerned that they're going to spend all their time and all their energy on controversies, and they're not going to do the work. They don't have time to do the work of the Lord because they're focused on controversy all the time. I've known churches like that, by the way. been a part of churches. Just one scandal after another, one debate after another, one issue after another. And man, did they debate but they didn't get a lot done in the kingdom of God and Paul is concerned. And so he shares that concern to Timothy that instead of working, they're gonna be emboldened in, emboldened in what's the word? They're gonna be uh, wallowing in controversy and dissension. And I didn't want that. So he tells this to Timothy. Now here's the good news, obviously it worked. <laughs> Timothy goes there, he, he keeps them on the straight and narrow, and instead of being in the middle of controversies, and we'll talk about that in a minute, they persevered there as well, but they were working. And so Jesus immediately commends them for their hard work, so mission accomplished for young Timothy. Good for you, Timothy. That is, in a nutshell, the members of the church in Ephesus were getting it done. <laughs> they, were getting, they were doers, they were workers. They were getting it done. They were making progress. And I've got to think it's substantial because Jesus mentions it so quickly, immediately. You guys are workers. They were also persevering in difficult times. They were hard workers. And they were also persevering. But they were, all, uh, they were staying true to their Christian faith. That is, doctrinally, they weren't selling out. They had actually encountered some men who came into the church and claimed to be apostles. Now, there were only 12 apostles, uh, actually 13. There was a replacement for Judas, who, who, Matthias, who became an uh, apostle. So the 12 apostles plus the apostle Paul. So there were 13 apostles. But there were some other guys, not part of the 13, who came in and claimed to be apostles to the church. But they weren't. They were frauds. While other churches might have been easy targets for their deceptive schemes, the church in Ephesus tested them and realized they are a bunch of phonies. So good for them. And Jesus mentions that. You had these guys come in. Other people might have seen it, but not, uh, not have seen it, but you, you, you figured it out. You're doctrinally sound. By the way, Ephesus was a city uh, of about 250,000 people. Now, that's a decent-sized city in today's world, but we have cities that are four, five, six, seven, eight million people. And so 250,000 doesn't seem like a lot today. In the first century, that was one of the biggest cities in the world. 
Second only to Rome. It was a massive city. It was an important trade center. It was an important religious center. Religion played a big role, which was a big part of the challenge that the apostles had there. One of the most prominent worship centers was not a church. It was a temple dedicated to Diana. Now, here's a picture of it, also called Artemis. Artemis was, I believe, the Greek word for the God, and then Diana was the uh, Roman word for, for the God, uh, for the false deity. And this temple is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent. And look at that, my goodness. And so that kind of religion, in fact, this very temple and this very religion to Diana or Artemis was a part of the big problem that Paul had. We'll get to that in just a minute. Paul spent two years there, by the way, was eventually run out of town. And over the years, the church had been taught by Paul, Apollos, and Timothy. So the church faced fierce opposition. Uh, remember, Ephesus was a religious capital and Christianity stood in opposition to idol work, worship. And so all other worship was idol worship. In the end of Acts chapter 19, I don't know if you remember this, Luke tells us all about the story. Uh, Paul, and, and he's, he's preaching the gospel in Ephesus and the Holy Spirit is working. People are converting left and right. The church is really growing. And it caused a, a problem there because a lot of these people that are there, their livelihood is to make false idols. The idol of Diana, for example, probably one of the most popular, if not the most popular idol to be sold in the, in the city. It was big, big budget, big money. All, probably all different sizes and materials were made. You could go in and get your favorite idol, whatever you could afford of Diana. Well, with Paul converting everybody, they didn't need their idols anymore. So apparently the silversmiths saw their, their idols being sold, you know, used, you know, on the Facebook marketplace or eBay or something. And they got all upset. I mean, they started a riot. They grabbed some church members and drug them out into this courtyard area. And they're going to do whatever they were going to do. And finally, one of the silversmiths spoke up and he said, wait, wait, wait a minute. Uh, you know, we, we've got courts for this. We're civilized people. And he calmed them down and they went home. But it was a mess. And Paul ended up having to lead the city over that. And uh, so there's the challenge that the church had. And yet they persevered. So they did well. Not only did they survive, but they stood strong in the face of terrible, heretical doctrines that were going around, not just outside the church, but also inside the church as well. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, he also adds this one verse, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I'm not going to get into the theology of the Nicolaitans. They were these kind of guys that think that because we've been forgiven by Jesus, the blood of Jesus, we can just sin all we want, which sounds like a good idea, except that's not biblical. <laughs> so Paul had to deal with that as well. And that, that heresy was in the church and they had to get that out of the church. It was false doctrine. And so I commend them for doing that and for getting false doctrine out of the church. And it, it's a concern to this very day. False doctrine is everywhere. It's rampant. 
I, I scrolled through Facebook this week. I don't know why I do that. I just get mad. Somebody makes a meme and suddenly it's canonized as scripture. Be careful about that. Don't be, don't be so naive. And I, I hope that you're not. I'm sure that you're not. But obviously somebody's watching those and believing whatever they read. If it's on print, it's on the computer, it must be true. So be careful about false doctrines. So if they were doing so good, if they were working hard and they were staying true doctrinally, what, what could go wrong? What's the problem? And they only had one problem. That's the good news. The bad news, the problem was so bad, it was a deal breaker to Jesus. Literally. He's about to break faith with them. They, they were in danger of being cut off the vine and thrown into the fire. His judgment was, was imminent if they didn't change their ways. What could they possibly be doing if they were hard workers? And if they were doctrinally sound, what could they possibly do that would render judgment? Well, look with me in verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. By the way, who was their first love? It was Jesus. You have to understand, Jesus is penning the letter. What if you came home one day and your spouse looked you in the eye? Man, your wife looked you in the eyes or ladies, your husband looked you in the eye and they said, look, I want to I say thank you for all that you do. You know, the house looks great. You know, the yard looks great. You do some amazing decorating. Uh, everything is taken care of. We have money in the bank. You don't spend the money. We save it. We're, we're set and we're sound. And, and you keep yourself real well. And, and you do everything that I could ever ask in a spouse, except there's this one problem. And they look you in the eye and they say, I don't love you. This is what they're saying to Jesus. They don't realize they're saying this, but Jesus is confronting them on this. He said, you guys work hard. You have, God, you have good doctrine. But you don't love me. I can tell you that you could hear a pin drop in that Ephesus church, that Ephesian church, when he said that. I'm sure they were blindsided. They were stunned. What? We don't love you. Look how hard we work. Look at our doctrine. Jesus said, yeah, 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 I get that. But listen to me. I know your hearts. Jesus knows your hearts. He knows my heart. And you can hide it from each other. You can hide it from me and I can hide my heart from you. We can all pretend together. But you can't do that with Jesus. He knows exactly how you feel about him. He knows whether you're passionate or not. And he knew that with the Ephesian church. Oh my goodness. <laughs> my, Michael, 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 Michael. Michael came up and he said something like, are you excited to be here? Did you, did you hear your response? Ooh, yay. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Jesus. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> Don't you know he's watching? He's not on break. <laughs> and so he said it again. He did a little better. Listen, have you, have you lost your first love? Now, I know he, maybe he caught you off guard. Maybe you, you're still getting warmed up. 
Or do you, are you really glad to be in the house of God today? Yeah, I, I mean, you, <laughs> you, you know, if you said that to your spouse before you got married when you were still dating, honey, do you love me? <laughs> You'd still be single. Some of you are probably, I don't know. But you, you know, you understand what I'm saying? That's what the church in Ephesus was. Oh, yay. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, you've lost that loving feeling. There's another song for you. They're not in love with him. He says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen, which means they used to really love him. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. When he says you have forsaken your first love, the word forsaken is the, the Greek word aphime. It means to lay aside, to leave, or to let go, or to omit, or to put it away. At some point, they just took their love for Christ and put it away. Now, I guarantee they didn't wake up one day, just like you and me, they didn't wake up one day and say, you know, starting from day on, I'm not going to love Jesus anymore. I'm done. I'm out. They never said that. And I guarantee they were shocked when they heard this. Well, what do you mean I don't love you? What, what do you mean? But again, you can't argue with Jesus. He knows our hearts. And he said, you have forsaken. You've left it aside. Listen, what we do for our Savior is important. But why we do it is paramount. Over the years and across four different churches that I've pastored, I've seen many people work very hard. And there's no question the church needs hard workers. We need hard workers here. But I've also some, seen some people work hard, and yet I found myself wondering about their motives. Now, for the sake of argument, I'm not talking about you guys. I pastored three other churches, so let's stick with them. There are members that I had over the years and over the decades that made me wonder, why are they doing what they're doing? Because I found myself really wondering if they're believers in Christ at all. Why? Because they were mean, <laughs> just mean, ornery people. They'd snap at you in a heartbeat. They were always getting in trouble. They hated their neighbors and their neighbors hated them. They didn't have a friend in the world. That kind of person just mean. But they would come into the church and they would just work hard. So it was a, a bit of a paradox. I've seen people come into the church and they work real hard for their family for their kids. And as soon as their kids graduate from high school and move away, I never see the parents again. That's happened. I've known of people who did wonderful things, but they did it for reasons of control or manipulation in the church so that everybody would owe them. In Ephesus, they started out working for the right reason. They loved their savior. And I'll commend them for this. Jesus doesn't say to them, you guys never loved me. Listen to me. He didn't say that. You never loved me. Maybe you said that to somebody you were dating. You know, I have to notice, you know, everything's going great in the relationship, but I don't think you've ever really cared for me that much. He could have said that to them, but that was not the case. They once did love him. He was their first love, spiritually speaking. He doesn't say that. They were doing it for the right reasons initially because they loved their Savior. And everything they did 
in the church was a labor of love. I want you to work hard here. We have so many ministry opportunities, and I believe those ministry opportunities make a difference in your life and the lives of others in Azel and beyond. It's important. And I so, so want you to do it. But I need you to do it as a labor of love. Because if it's just a labor, it's just torment for everybody. Labor of love. So for those of you, we have like a cast of 100 for Journey to Bethlehem. I know some of you have done it so many years. We've been doing it for like 12 years now. Um, I know, it, you, know you've, you know the lines, you've done the thing, you've done the scene, so have I. I do it every year. I do the last station where I share the gospel. But this year, I want to challenge you for the love of Jesus, literally, I want you to do that as though it's the first time you've ever done it. Going to be beautiful nights. We're going to have a lot of people. Do it with the joy that God gives you in Jesus Christ. Do it sincerely. Men, when you were dating your wife, there, when you were dating, do you remember when you were dating your wife? There wasn't anything you wouldn't do for her. If she said, honey, would you do this or do that? Sure. If you're out in public, honey, would you hold my purse? Sure. <laughs> you know, you're dating. You, you want to get her down the aisle. You do whatever she wants. She comes and asks you to do something now. You just look at her and think, really? <laughs> Maybe you've lost that love and feeling. I wonder if we don't look at Jesus sometime and go, really? You want me to do that? You want me to teach children? Are you crazy, Jesus? Really? Oh, have you lost that loving feeling to Christ? So now the Ephesians were going through the motions. The joy was gone. Their love for Christ had quietly faded away. They didn't mean for it to happen. It just did. And I guarantee it wasn't the fault of Christ. Why? How did that happen? Well, the answer might surprise you. I suspect it was an unfortunate and unnecessary side effect from two things. And oddly enough, they're the two things that they were commended for. I don't know this. It's just a suspicion. First, their doctrinal integrity could have become an end in itself. I see that happen. They had to continually fight that fight, and there was so much heresy floating around that they lost focus on the why and the who of their faith. They just thought about the what. Again, I've seen that happen over the years. It can happen to all of us, but especially to pastors and church leaders. There have been more than one fellow pastors that I considered friends but they became so obsessed with doctrinal perfection that they have become defensive, abrasive, calloused, and even hateful to anybody who has an opposing view. Be careful about that. It's okay to disagree with one another in the Lord without becoming calloused and mean about it. Even in other churches, they're so righteous in their own eyes, they, they no longer exist to love but to expose or to debate endlessly to argue or to misuse their doctrinal beliefs as a weapon to destroy anyone who disagrees. Be careful and mindful of that. It's easy to lose your love for Jesus in the path to become perfectly righteous all the time. Don't get me wrong. I believe that you and I should seek and maintain doctrinal purity. I'm not going to sell out to this secular godless world, not now, not ever. 
But that doesn't give me a license to become callous and verbally berate fellow Christians who don't agree with me. But the Ephesian Christians went a step further. They lost interest in Jesus himself. In the midst of their doctrinal debates, they forgot about Jesus and they just lost their love. They probably thought the biggest problem that they faced in their church was, were the false apostles and the false doctrines. But nope, they were the biggest problem in their church because they fell out of love with their Savior. Remember, again, this is Jesus writing the letter to them. He knows their motives. You can't fool him. And in the kingdom, if your motives are wrong, you're working for nothing. They were so busy being righteous, they forgot to love their Savior. Secondly, I think they were just hard workers. <laughs> That's the impression I get. They just like to work. Strangely enough, young people, some people like to work. They just like to work all the time. I've got people like this in my church. Uh, and I, I put them to work. <laughs> they're the ones leading all the, all the ministries because they're just workers. And some people just have a mind to work. And hard workers work hard. And that's a good thing. We always need more hard workers, but it is no replacement for a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus say they needed to do? What did he say that we need to do? As we get ready to close this morning, he simply says this, you need to go back. That, that's the word repent. It means to go back and do what you did in the beginning. Any of you married people, if you go to counseling, the counselor, if he's any good at all, will tell you that pretty quickly. Well, you didn't used to have all this animosity for one another. You didn't used to be bitter with one another. You didn't used to talk to each other in this tone. You used to use a different tone. Remember when you were young? You need to go back and do that again. So look with me in verse 5. He says, remember the height from which you were fallen. So they used to really be in love with Jesus. He says, repent, go back and do the things you did at first. And then he says, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place. Notice Jesus doesn't say this. Your work and doctrine and perseverance is good, but you don't love me anymore. But since you work so hard and your doctrine so good, I give you half credit. <laughs> I'm sure they would have loved that. Well, do I want to get some credit for being here even though I don't love Jesus? Nope. <laughs> it's all about the relationship. And if it's not there, then all the other things that you do don't matter. You have to do it out of a love for Christ. So as a result, their lampstand is about to get ripped out from under them, which means their church will cease to exist. So how do you and I rekindle our love for our Savior? Well, he tells us, just go back and do it. You probably know what to do. Go back and do that. Remember when you first got saved? That sparkle in your eye, that smile on your face. Go back and do that. You were eager to volunteer. You didn't have to wait till Lisa came and drug you along and says, well, you know, I need this part filled for journey to Bethlehem or wait for my wife, Terry, to recruit you for something, to volunteer you to do something. You were eager to sign up because you were excited, because you were, you were in love with your Savior. So go back and do that. When we work in the church, we remember it is all for our love for Christ. When we worship, when we sing, when we teach or anything else, Christ has to come first. Tonight, we're going to have our annual business meeting. 
Now, early on in my four churches that I pastored, in the very first church that I pastored, I learned to dread business meetings. We had them all the time. Even before then, in my home church where I grew up, we had some very contentious business meetings. Yelling, anger, finger pointing. Nope, not here. My first week here, my first month here, when I came here 25 years ago, those few of you that are here that were, are still alive that were here when I came here, I set two concrete rules for the church. I heard that they had had a contentious meeting. I wasn't there. I hope it wasn't over me. But, but uh, so I set two rules for the business meeting. And I always say this, and we're going to have a business meeting tonight, so it's good practice. Only two rules. Number one, say whatever you want, as long as it's business. It had better be business. That's what a business meeting is for. No complaints. It's not a complaint forum. No gossip. No announcements. That's not what it's for. You need to conduct God's business. You make a motion for something. And number two, whatever you say has to be within the law of love. And that's the heart of what I want to tell you today. Whatever you say in a business meeting or whatever you say in church anywhere should be under the law of love. Be kind, gentle, and loving. And yes, we can be loving even in a business meeting. What I said to them was, if you're angry and you don't feel that you can make a motion or have a discussion in a kind, loving, Christ-like tone, turn to your spouse or your neighbor and ask them to make the motion or have the discussion in your place. And this church has been wonderful about that. Because of you, I no longer dread business meetings. We're doing God's work. I believe that. And what we're going to be voting on tonight, which is just another annual budget, no big surprises, but it's still important because we're doing God's work and it's making a difference. People are getting saved. Missions are happening and ministry is happening. And, and I'm eager and excited to get to be a part of that. We are under the law of our Savior's love. And what we do, whether it's worship, fellowship, journey to Bethlehem, or even business meetings, it's for the glory of God, and it stems from our love for Jesus Christ. So work hard. Keep your faith. Keep it pure. Persevere, and don't sell out, and don't give up. This world is a mess. The end is coming, and there is a bad moon rising. <laughs> but always remember all we are, and for all we do, there is only one reason that we are here. One hope that compels us to persevere. One love that unites us, and his name is Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the letter to Ephesus. And it may very well be a letter to us as well. It's a warning that we must heed and we know that you were very serious with that church. You weren't bluffing with them. That first and foremost, everything that we say, sing, pray, think, and do in this place must stem out of our love for you. Christ, we love you. You died for us in our place. You've given us hope. You've taken that weight and that burden of our sins off of us. And we have been freed from our slavery, our bondage. And we love you. And we'll never be able to love you in this world 
to the depth that you love us. And you loved us first before there was a lo- before there was in us. You loved us. Help us to grow our love for you. I know you want it to be deeper, stronger, better. Help us to heed the warning of the Ephesian church and not let it quietly fade away. Father, help us as we remain pure in our doctrine. Help us to remain strong in this crooked and depraved world that's constantly pressuring churches and in many places in our world, persecuting and prosecuting Christians for their faith, trying to force them to change their doctrine. Help them and us as we stay strong. Father, thank you for the opportunity to work in your church. There's so much that needs to be done in the kingdom, even in this place. And we have so many good faithful workers here. Thank you for that. But as we work hard, remind us that we work hard for you. We work hard for our Savior. We work hard, not because we have to. We can't earn our salvation. We don't deserve it. It was a free gift. We work hard because we love you. Help us not forget that. No one's looking around as you're praying right where you are. I want to encourage you in a prayer right now, just between you and your Savior, to say to him, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I love you for who you are, and I love you for saving my life, for forgiving me, for dying in my place and bearing that pain. Thank you. I love you. When was the last time you said that to him? It may be God is giving you an opportunity to serve joyfully here in this church. Or if you don't live here, if you're watching online, around the world, wherever you live, and you want to share your love for Christ in a church somewhere, God will give you an opportunity. Maybe God is calling you or your family to join with First Baptist Church this morning. You just want to come down and say, we'd like, Pastor, we'd like to join. Or maybe you want to surrender your life to Jesus. You haven't done that. You've thought about it, but you haven't actually done it. Today's the day. Now's the opportunity Christ has given you. Just come down and say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to surrender to him. I want to be a Christian. In the biblical sense of the term, I want to become a Christian. Or maybe you just want to come and kneel and pray and thank Christ for loving you. If God is leading right now, this invitation is for you. Would you stand? Everyone stand. All heads are bowed. All eyes are closed. And as everyone stands right now, as you pray, you come.